admit our guilt. We'd rather suppress the truth we know about you so that we can uh, uh, appease it another way. As you and I know, the only way guilt is dealt with at the cross of Calvary. That's it. But praise God, guilt is dealt with at the cross of Calvary. And so we pounded our fist and we said, well, it's not that we don't believe in you, it's just that we don't want to have anything to do with you. So I want you out of my choices, I want you out of my future, I want you out of my womb, I want you out of my um, career, I want you out of my relationships, I want you out of my family, I want you out of my community, I want you out of my school, I want you out of my government. And sadly enough, the situation's got considerably worse because some have said, I want you out of my church. And they abandoned the Word of God and subscribed to carnal reasoning under the guise of Christian faith. And we said, okay, if we're going to be in that culture, and we are, we're in that time frame, and we are, God will never abandon the believer. Praise God. Hallelujah. But to abandon a culture, will He do that? <laughs> Absolutely. Is He doing that right now? Absolutely. And so, He hasn't abandoned us. And if there's ever, if there's ever been a time when we were to get our sight straight and see what it means to be in relationship and fellowship with the Lord, surely it will be now. And we've looked at all the characteristics of that. And we've, we've seen from the Scriptures that there are a series of be statements. Be focused. Be sober. Be holy. Be content. Be watchful. Be prayerful. Be loving. And, and we looked at all of these. And then, I think it's just helpful to look at a picture of a believer who is in relationship but not fellowship and the point in time when he transitions from being in relationship outside of fellowship and goes from relationship to fellowship. And that's Jacob. And Jacob, at this point in time, you remember, uh, we looked at the background last year, I mean last year, last uh, Sunday. And Jacob, up to this time, had spent his entire life being a conniver. Uh, we remember in the fact that his name means heel catcher because he caught the heel of his brother as they were coming out of the womb. He's a guy who trips people up. He's a deceiver. He's a carn artist. He's a schemer. He's a manipulator. To be honest with you, he represents the dangerous, most dangerous person in the Bible. The most dangerous person in the Bible is not the open pagan. It's easy to explain away that. We said over and over and over and over and over again and observed a principle that's principled in Scripture and it's just flat true. And that is that lost people act lost. If we're appalled at their value system, we shouldn't be. Because that's how lost people act. As a matter of fact, a lost person can never do anything good. Do you know that? It's not that they can't do anything righteous. They can't even do anything good. The Bible says no one does good. No, not one. Somehow or another, everything they do is sinful. They have no capacity to do anything that is not sinful. The only thing they can do is sin. And before you and I got saved, that's all we can do. But now, when we are saved now, we have options. We do. Uh, God sought us in salvation, but now that He's found us, we're to seek Him. And that fellowship is predicated upon an obedient walk. And so we looked at it and said, okay, we've got Jacob, and he's the schemer, he's the conniver, and he represents the most dangerous person on the planet Earth. And that is somebody who claims to be in, but often acts like he's out. And he's the middleman. And the middleman confuses everybody. The middleman is the person who says they have Christian faith, and their life reflects almost little or no Christian faith. 
And that person confuses everybody. That person does more damage to the cause of Christ than somebody who's openly pagan because lost people act lost. But even though saved people don't embrace the faith that we say have changed us, they do believe it should mean change. You ever thought about that? A, a person who is completely lost, if you say you're saved, they don't know why, but they expect you to act different. They really do. And when you don't act different, uh, then we got some explaining to do. Now that's, that's what repentance is for. When we don't act different, we're don't up to it. And humble ourselves and say, you know what, I messed up. That's inconsistent with who God's made me. And they'll accept that. But to pridefully cover it up and, and refuse to come to a place of repentance, they don't accept that. And neither does the Lord. And neither should we expect them to. So Jacob is that man. He's confusing everybody. And he, the, the one who's most confuses him. And God meets him here. And I want you to notice something about this when we read the text here. If you look in Genesis 32, verse 1, it says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And then he goes on to say, man, this place where the angels of God have met me, this is God's camp. And then he goes on to name the camp a name that means double camp. It means this is the camp of God and man. And God's about to show him, no, no, it's not. No, it's not. This is the camp of God, and I'm about to empty you. See, there's still too much of Jacob here. It, there's still far too much of Jacob. I wonder how much of Jacob is left in me and you. I wonder how much. I wonder what God is doing in your life to get rid of your Jacob. Because, see, the issue was not what was happening externally. There was an external threat, you remember, that Jacob was about to face. Jacob was shaking in his boots because, and he had reason to in his sandals. He had reason to, and that's because the last time he had seen his brother... 20 years earlier, he had swindled him out of his birthright. And, and Jacob knew about it, and Jacob said this, okay? Our dad is old, Isaac. And since he's still around, I'm going to let Esau, I'm going to let Jacob live. But the moment my dad dies, I'm going to kill him. This is the last thing he knows about his brother. So his mother, you'll recall, says, why she convinces Isaac uh, uh, to, to send him away, to go back to their homeland to find a wife. Because Esau had already found two wives by then, and both of his wives were Canaanite women. And they, the Bible doesn't say why, but they were a uh, complete disaster. And they were daughter-in-laws that were driving uh, Rebecca and Isaac crazy. And she said, I can't take another daughter-in-law like that. If he hangs around here and marries one of these Canaanite women, I cannot stand a third daughter-in-law like that. So she used that as a cover to send him to go get a wife out of their own family. He winds up at his uncle's house, Aunt Laban, and winds up, you know the story, serving there for 20 years. And Laban swindled him and deceived him just like Jacob spent a lifetime swindling because you reap what you write. But you know what? Jacob has still not learned the lesson. He was still a swindler. But now, now Esau is approaching. And the problem here is, is that Jacob has no scheme to get him out of this one. I mean, it's not like he can say, I didn't do it. It's not like he's got somebody else to blame. He's, he's left with nothing. I don't have a defense. Esau, you remember, is a man's man. Esau is not a sissy. And Esau's name means hairy. 
And he was a burly guy. And Jacob was anything but that. He was kind of soft and, and weak. And that's okay. But just the physical thought and the physical representation of this Esau represented a, a foe and represented a threat to, to Jacob that had scared him to death. So much so that he sent people ahead of time to go let, let Esau know he's coming. And what word does he get back? Esau's looking for you. And by the way, he's got 400 able men with him. <laughs> you know. And so he comes up with a plan. The only plan he can come up with is, is, is here's the deal. Think about this too. He took two of his handmaidens by which he had children and then his two wives and he took the least favorite and he sent them out first, then the next least favorite, then the next least favorite and there he is flanked by his wife, um, Rachel, who is his favorite. And he said, let him kill them first and by the time he gets through them, maybe he's, maybe he's done. That's how he was thinking. This, is a, this guy was a self-serving guy. And your flesh and my flesh is self-serving. Did you realize that positionally, when you're saved, positionally you die. But practically, your flesh is every bit as evil as it was when you got saved. The new birth does not, in practice, alter the flesh. It's not one bit better than it was before you got saved. Now, it, it can be dormant and inactive. But there's an indwelling sin in us. That's not who we are. But we can raise that guy back up. And if we keep feeding that guy, he will take over our choices. And he will be the one who is in control rather than the Holy Spirit. That can happen to a believer. And it does happen to us. Now, don't, now wait, don't go out there saying that we're not... I'm, positionally, the Bible says, we've been crucified with Christ. But practically, the new birth does not, in practice, in a practical sense, alter the flesh. That's why Christians can do appalling things and still be Christians. That's why Lot could do what he did and offer up his daughters like he did. You know the story we went over it. In a, in a, in a heinous act of offering up his own children in order to um, appease some sodomites. Saved man did that. That's why. Okay, so he's shaking. And he's saying, okay, here's the deal. And at this point of his shaking, I just want to ask you a question. Who is your Esau? What is it that you mostly fear? You know, the circles we travel in, did you know a lot of people, I believe, homeschool because of the fear of man and not the fear of God? Be careful that you don't slip into that. That man is not to be feared as a believer, but God is to be feared. You teach your children to fear men, they'll miss God. You teach your children to fear God, and they'll walk in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what the society has pitted against us. The only, the only enemies that we have are the world, flesh, and the devil, and every last one of them were crushed on the cross of Calvary. Every last one of them. We want to teach our children to fear God, not to fear men. The fear of man is a snare. When once you begin to fear men, then that fear will control you. Understand, believers, fear will control you or either faith will control you. And we need to be honest enough and humble enough to ask the Lord, which one is it that controls me? Am I being led by fear or am I being led by faith? If you've been led to make the choices you've made, even if they started out that there was, was fearing God, if it slips into fearing men, repent. Be, be, 
let's, why don't we just go and ask God? And it, matter of fact, before we have the Lord's Supper, I really struggled just a few moments ago of whether or not we should have the Lord's Supper and just maybe have it at the beginning of the service. And I realized, no, no. Let's let the Word of God sift us and see so that we're prepared for the Lord's Supper. And if there's something that comes up in the Word this morning that gets us ready for the Lord's Supper, then we can take it joyfully. And maybe that's one of the things. Could we go before the Lord this morning and say, are my choices being led by faith or are my choices being led by fear? That is a great question. Let me tell you this. People who get angry, and, and I know this from personal experience, angry people, the root of anger is fear. The root of anger is fear. You wouldn't think it. Because you would think a fear person, I mean an angry person is in control and of their own self and they're just, they're just frustrated about what others may or may not be doing around them. But what was the, the anger is driven by not it's, it's driven by fearing future. It's driven by fearing consequences. It's driven by fears that we have rather than driven by being fearful of the Lord. The Bible says the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And so we need to ask, are the choices we've been making? Because see, right now, up until this point, Jacob's choices have been made not by fear of God, but by fear of men. And now, that fear, his chickens have come home to roost. Now, God's got him in this double camp. He's getting ready to tell him. He said, no, 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 no. This is not a double camp. Mm -mm. This is my camp. This is my camp. Then he gets word that his Esau is coming. What does your Esau look like? What is your greatest fear? Would you ask the Lord maybe this morning? Would I ask the Lord this morning? Am I doing things based on fear of the future, fear of outcomes? Do I have spiritual objectives, but I'm using carnal means to accomplish them? Did you hear that? Do I have spiritual objectives, but am I using carnal means to accomplish them? You can easily do that. You can have a physical, I mean a spiritual objective, a spiritual thing that nobody would take you to task for that could come straight from God. But if you're not careful, you'll be so fearful as to whether or not that will come into pass, you'll take matters in your own hands to ensure it. And you can't do that. You can only do your part in obedience, but the rest of it's up to God. It always has been. It always will be. It's up to God to save my children. I cannot save my children. I cannot make my children walk with God. I can't make other people walk with God. And I can only worry about and be concerned about my walk with God, but the rest of it is supernatural. It's God who does that. He's the one who works within us about the will and to do for His good pleasure. And so, we come up here to this and we see right now that Jacob, God's got him exactly where He wants. Now, we talked about it last week. It doesn't say, you remember, in the narrative, it does not say that Jacob wrestled with God. Does it? What does it say? In verse 24, God wrestled with him. Now, why is that a great distinction? The reason that's a great distinction is this. God scheduled the wrestling match. It was done on God's terms, in God's way, and in God's time. God set this up. You're scheduled for a wrestling match with God. You might be in the middle of one right now. I can tell you right now I am. Almost assuredly, I'm in right in the ring and the bells went bing! Like that. Boy, there's some things that God's doing in my life this week and I was thinking, Lord, no wonder we're here. We're here you straighten out me. I'm not preaching with you. I'm preaching. I'm not preaching to you. I'm with you. But you know what? He had that wrestling match. He was under great distress. Look at it in verse seven. 
Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And you would have been too. Are you greatly afraid and distressed that you're Esau? It says, Oh God of my Father, look at, look at this. Look at this. Here's the first step to take when you're greatly distressed and God's moving you from relationship to fellowship. Is prayer. Oh God of my Father Abraham and God of my Father Isaac and the Lord who said to me. Oh, the first spot is to not pray based on what you see outward, but pray based on what you know to be true upward. Let the, let the, let the prayer be God-centered and not circumstance-centered. Isn't it so easy? Isn't it so easy for us to begin our prayer and start out with he, you, this is a way we will often pray. God, Esau is on the other side of the river and he's coming after me with 400 men. Please protect me. No, it started out, God, you're the God of my father Abraham. You're the God of my father Isaac. Did you know in two spots in Scripture that I know of, Jacob knew enough about God to call God the fear of his father? Did you know that? When he, when he and Laban, see God's preparing him for this moment. And he and Laban, they try to make a covenant together. And Laban says, let's make a covenant together right here because I could kill you. God told me not to mess with you one way or the other. I'm not supposed to say anything good about you. I'm not supposed to do anything bad, bad to you. Let's make a covenant right here. That we're going to coexist, basically. And he prayed. And he said, oh, this is the God of our father Abraham and my father. And he said, no, no, no. Wait up, Dad. That's not... Uh, the God that you worship is not the God that I worship. The God that I worship... He called him at that point of covenant the fear of my father Isaac. See, he knew he had a dad who feared God. But what does this affirmation evoke? It evokes promises. What it's saying is, it's the gospel. What he's saying, fast forward, is the God who saved me. The God who came up with a plan before the foundation of the world. The God who is. The God who was and is and is to come. The I am. I am praying to you. I am affirming you. I am focusing on your attributes, not on my circumstances. This is where our prayers need to start. They need to start with praise. Even if it doesn't, that's why we sang this morning, when there's pain in the offering, blessed be the name of the Lord. In spite of the fact that there might be pain, in spite of the circumstances, and in spite of what it might be, in spite of dreams that seem to be destroyed right in front of you, in spite of outcomes that you didn't expect, in spite of turns that you didn't it's just, think were coming, in spite of disappointment and pain and all the other things that go with it, God, you're still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does that mean? You're God the Father. You're God the Son. You're God the Holy Spirit. You're the God who promised Abraham, I'm going to send a seed. It doesn't say seeds. It says seed. And that word is capitalized. He said to him, I am going to send my son. And Abraham said, I believe that. And God said, you're saved. He's saying, a God who saves. Somebody affirmed that this morning when we were going to attributes. And that we affirmed that God saves. That was sung this morning when my grandfather pastored Southside Baptist Church in Hazelhurst, Georgia. There was a neon sign. My grandfather was bold as a lion. If you were around him more than two minutes, you were going to hear about Jesus. And he had a big neon sign, the kind that says open, and it said Jesus saves at the top of the building of the church he pastored. He had that put up there. He does save. Jesus does save. You understand, that doesn't just mean that you got in. That's 
saving you since you got in. You're being saved right now. You have been saved. And praise His holy name, you will be saved. You are saved. And that's what He's saying. God, You're the eternal, transcendent God. You are going to come through on this. He who began a good work in me is going to complete it until the day of His Son. That's what that says. That opening right there is 50 miles wide and 190 miles deep. It's big. This is the way we should pray. We should pray to God as He is, that He's big. We should pray to God as He is, and that is He is big. You serve a big God. Amen? You serve a God who's not subservient to any. You serve a God who has no rival. You serve a God who beside Him, the Bible says, there is no other. He is not a good way to heaven. He's the only way to heaven. He is the sovereign God of the creation. He is sovereign over everything. If the sparrow falls, He's sovereign over it. If the ocean roars, He's sovereign over it. If the sea is calm, He's sovereign over it. If a wind comes up and rustles it up, He's sovereign over it. He's sovereign over how long it happens. He's sovereign over how intense it gets to happen. He's sovereign over everything that comes into your life. The Bible places no limits on the sovereignty of God. Amen? That's the kind of God we serve. That's what He's saying right there. This is not the God of Nahor. No, ma'am. This is not the God of... Of, uh, of, 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 of some pagan worshiper. This is not the God of Laban. They worship false gods. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not the best God. It's not the God who is bigger than the other ones and superior to the other ones. He's the only God. And He's three in one. And He's able. If He can get a dirty sinner to heaven, He can flat do anything. Amen? Make us clean and fit for it. Hallelujah. Amen? Believer, He loves you and He's in charge of whatever you're going through. He's in charge of what you're going through now. He's in charge of what you've gone through and He's in charge of what you will go through. And He has a plan. And that is, He's going to conform you into the image of His Son. And I'm sorry, you're in it now. And you can't get out if you wanted to. Amen? Do you think for one minute that we would stay in if it were left up to us? Rebel us? No. It's God who works within us both the will and to do for His good pleasure. You said to me, second thing, He's reminding him of promises. Remember we talked about it. We're going to say this over and over again. Please, let this be a takeaway for you this morning. Please, by God's grace, would it be? You can't pray back God's promises unless you've received one. You can't pray back promises to Him unless you're standing on one. But you've got to stand on something that you've sought. And when you seek it, then you stand on it. And then people will come and try to talk you out of it. Maybe even well-meaning people. You didn't hear that. I said, well, you know what the problem is? Is maybe you have doubts about whether or not I heard it. But your challenge, silently you could say this, don't say it to them. Your challenge stands to only reinforce how far I believe I've heard it. That's all it'll do if you respond in that way. And you know what? I'm going to latch on to the promises of God. And, and, Abraham, and you know what? Jacob's getting ready to do that. He's getting a little bit of tenacity here. He really is. Because he's getting ready for a wrestling match where he's going to say, God, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And look what he says. 
return to your country, your family. You said to me this, and I will deal well with you. Now, what does that imply? Where he's at right now for what he faces, what does that imply? That somehow or another, you're going to rescue me from the hand of Esau. That's what it means. Because God would have said that. God said, return to your country and your family and I'm going to raise up Esau with 400 men flanked by his side to slaughter you. Praise my holy name. He didn't say that. He said, I will return to your family and I'll deal well with you. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything about Abraham. Or it doesn't mean anything about Isaac. It doesn't mean anything about Jacob. What it means is, is the promises I made through the redemptive work of my son I will bring to pass and I've chosen you to do it. Why? Because you're a great guy? Well, he's a heel catcher, the swindler, schemer, manipulator. Okay, I don't see anything there. Um, no. Because I'm a sovereign God. He affirms God's greatness. He latches on to God's promise and prays it back to Him. And now He affirms in humility. I'm in need of repentance. What He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and the truth which you've shown to your servant. This is, I, I'm going to be honest with you. And I've read this countless times. But this is really the first place, really in the narrative, in my opinion, where you see humility in Jacob. When I read this, I've been praying to this ever since I read it months ago in my personal Bible time. I thought, you know what, Lord? That's exactly how I feel. You could put my name right there. I, have, I feel that exactly that way about you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and the truth that you've shown me. That's affirming. It's not taking away his standing with God. It's celebrating it. What he's saying is, God, the fact that I have standing with you to affirm what I just affirmed exacerbates, it accentuates your grace because I stood in need of it and when I did, you supplied it. See, to, to, to say I'm not worthy is not to latch on to the worthiness of Christ. It's just to celebrate it and give it more traction. To say, Lord, the worthiness I have of You is best understood of how unworthy I am absent You. Contrast. It's like taking jewels. When you go to the jewelry store, one or two times I've been, that's why we're not going anymore. And you go to the jewelry store and they hand a diamond to you and they're there at the counter. They've got sense enough to know. They're not going to let it sit there on a white sheet of paper and show it to you. You know what they're going to do? They're going to take a black velvet cloth and they're going to take the diamond and put it on top of the black velvet cloth and you're going to go, I can't live without that. And your husband's going to go, please change your heart. Because it's going to stand out. It's brilliant. That's what he's doing here. What he's saying is, is your grace and mercy are stood out to me because I have an appreciation and a growing appreciation of how unworthy I am of both. We preach God little. We preach Him so little nowadays. We present the Gospel as if somebody's worthy of it. We present the Gospel as if God's just so gooey in love with you He couldn't stand it. If somebody was so gooey in love with you because you're so good that He sent His Son to bring forth your goodness and potential and so that you could just do good because you're just so good, you cute. We do that. And what does that do? That spiritual reductionism of, its, of the most profane sort. Because what we're saying is, the premise is, is there's something redemptive in man that motivated God to do what He did. Let me tell you something right now. I'm glad to know that's not true. Because that makes what He did all the greatest and more marvel. Doesn't it? 
You set that black cloth and you put that diamond down there, you go, ah! and it's only then that you can really see its brilliance. And that's what he's saying to God right now. We're going to close right now. Don't you remember this? And we're going to go. We're going to keep working through this narrative because if we just jump in, we jumped in last week and showed the wrestling match. Well, we've got to set things up. And the scriptures, no, we don't. The scriptures set things up. Now, why this occurred, the context in which it occurred. But let me tell you this right now. This is a fatal flaw that we make as believers. Do you remember? Do you remember? What does Jabbok mean? Empty. Huh? Empty. empty. It means empty. That's right, Andrew. It means empty. You're to write that in your Bible. Your notes. You're to get some mascara, lipstick, or something. And put that down. The word Jabbok means emptying. It means this is the place. The wrestling match. The marquee of the wrestling match. Tonight at 10 o'clock, Jacob wrestles with God. Come see it at Jabbok. Come see it at the place of emptying. Let me tell you this. Now watch this carefully. Listen to me. That later on, that later on, Jacob himself changed the name of that place. Jacob was in the habit of doing that. Almost everywhere he went, he had one name and he changed it to the other. And... He changed the name of that place. Do you remember what it was? He changed the name. And it went from Jacob to Peniel. And the reason it did is because Peniel... You know what Peniel means? It means the face of God. Now, watch this. At the very place where he was emptied is at the same spot that he saw the face of God. It's not that the location changed and he said, oh, let's go down the river a bit and we'll name it Peniel. But this is Jabbok. No, the same place where he met God and wrestled with, wrestled with God. Went from emptying to seeing the face of God at the same spot. Let me tell you this. We as believers, we as believers, often operate on the false notion that if we'll change circumstances and we'll go to a different spot, and we change what's going on the outside, we escape what God stands to do on the inside. How many times do you think that God is just on the... You, I, don't, I don't know how many times I've missed it. God will forgive us and we don't have to worry about this, but let's just try not to do it anymore. When we stand on the edge of the brink of a great blessing, in the middle of pain, because by this was a painful place. When you, when you knock somebody's hip out of joy, it's a painful place. There was pain in the offering. But when that painful place at that same spot, he, he, he forgot about the pain. It's like going through childbirth. You know, and the pain that goes through it, but when the baby comes out, you know, and, and it's like at that same place where the birth pains and the wrestling match was going on and the back and forth and all that, and God strikes that socket. So he's got a different walk. He never walks the same way again. He walks with a limp now. And so right there at that place was the emptying place, but the same place was the place of seeing the face of God. God's got a place for you. And He might be emptying you right now. Let me tell you this. If you respond correctly by obedience and submission and you stay the course at the same place that you're empty, you'll live to call that where I saw the face of God. Don't miss that. Dear ones, don't miss that. Because let me tell you this. We've affirmed this from this pulpit a million times. God's interest lies not in changing your circumstances. God's interest lies in changing you. And the truth of the matter is, is He uses your circumstances 
to do just that. Now, take away, please. Take away. Watch this. If most Christians, in practice, not position now, watch this, watch this. If most Christians, if you said, here's the deal, here's a blank sheet of paper, and I want you to write out how you live out Romans 10, 17. This is how they would write it. Faith comes from having heard the Word of God. Faith comes from having heard the Word of God. I heard it back yonder. I heard it a couple weeks ago. I heard it on Sunday. I heard it here. I heard it there. But that was good enough. But that's not what the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You see it? We treat it as if it's enough to have heard it. And then one Sunday we'll pick it up, go to church with it, and then the rest of the week we won't touch it again because faith comes from having heard it. That's not what it says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's what the wrestling makes. That's what the wrestling is about. Are you going to go with your fears or are you going to go with faith? Who's going to win? Because see, if you've got two dogs in your life and one of them is wanting to control, the one that gets controlled and the one that takes over is the one you keep feeding. And the one that's fed is the one who will wield influence. And the flesh is fed by lies and the, whole, and the Spirit is fed by the Word of God. And we treat it as if faith comes by having heard the Word of God rather than hearing the Word of God. And we wonder why we make the choices we make. We wonder why we don't persevere. We wonder why there's weakness. We wonder why there's lack of victory. We wonder why there's dry and coldness. We wonder why there's a distance. We, listen to me, believers. Listen to me. Me is this. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There's a huge difference between the two. It's almost as if, like we said, we sing about God, but so often we don't sing to God. He'd love to hear you sing, especially when it's hardest. I'm going to tell you this.